Hello and welcome to another episode of Tools, Talents, and Techniques. I'm your host, Dustin Sutton, and today I have the privilege of hosting Mr. James Robertson, Senior Vice President at JLL, a true powerhouse in the world of commercial real estate. And as you'll see in this episode, he has a passion for creative problem solving and is a deep understanding of leadership, politics, community, and we have such a great conversation here. He's a remarkable person. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed having it. And I have a feeling this is going to be the first of many podcasts that I have with James. I feel like there's just so much good information that he has to share his journey and where he sees the future of business in general, not just commercial real estate, but how it all ties together with, uh, with the community. So here he is, Mr. James Robertson. James, welcome to the show. Dustin, what's up, buddy? How's it going? It's going well. I'm uh, really excited about this conversation. We talked a little bit before about some of the things that we're going to be discussing today. And uh, I don't think I could be more excited about all the things. Um, I'm excited too, definitely. Before before we get going, can you introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you do? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'm James Robertson. I'm a, a senior vice president at Jones Lang LaSalle. Um, I do office and industrial real estate. I'm an entrepreneur. So um, I own a few businesses as well. And uh, those are my two big hats. I'm a father uh, of a bunch of kids, <laughs> a ton of kids. So uh, I would say those things. Uh, I, I love spending time at church um, with, with family uh, and work. That's really my life. I want to talk about the origin story of right. James. Where, where, did you, where, where does the story begin? You know what? Um, that's a good question. Well, I would have to say that one of the biggest pivots in my life had to be when I got to college, because that's when I started to actually learn to work to achieve goals and look at big goals versus just getting by. In high school, I think I just got by. So in college, uh, one of my goals was to make the football team at University of Houston, where I got to play as a middle linebacker for two years. And it was a great experience, really good experience. And I also had a goal to be a student body president at University of Houston too. And I was able to do that for two years. So um, I think college was when I really got into my stride. And I've really been trying to continue that uh, effort ever since then. Was it was high school just really easy for you? Why, why do you feel that you didn't really apply yourself prior to college? You know, high school was high school was tough for me because I was just this chubby kid. And, um, you know, I was overweight. I wasn't I was active. I played football. So I was a offensive lineman. So I held my weight well. I could move with it. I was pretty quick. but still. Um, I really lacked self-esteem at the time and I was not very social, even though I really liked people. So for me, high school was, I think, a typical fat kid experience where you're like, it's a tough place because you can get made fun of sometimes. You can, you know, not get the dates that you want and you have to learn to kind of toughen up and get in shape. So for me, high school was kind of a boot camp. <laughs> I would mm -hmm. say it was a good boot camp for me. Yeah. Was there any one moment in particular that made you say, hey, I need to straighten up or I really want to step on the gas here? Oh, yeah, man. I could tell you uh, the defining moment for me in high school was senior year when um, I was on varsity football and um, I had some scholarship opportunities. And during those scholarship opportunities, I got injured that last summer uh, just in training because I had not worked out. Uh, in the off season, like I should have. And so I got a knee injury, which kept me from playing that year. It kept me from getting scholarship opportunities that I had that year. So that was a defining moment for me because I felt like it was a lot of failure. Uh, but the benefit was I was able to start working out for a different goal. And that year, my senior year, that's when I lost 100 pounds in a year, going from like 320 as an offensive lineman to about 220 pounds where I got to play middle linebacker at U of H. So I was a lot faster, a lot stronger. So it was all overall, it was a net gain for me, but um, I had to go through those tough, tough patches to get there. 
congratulations. That's that's amazing. Losing a hundred pounds and then seeing the results and then actualizing them. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, well, I know this is a, a tools podcast and um, I will tell you that the tools that I used then, um, I immediately identified with the bodybuilders at the gym, uh, world's gym. We had some Hulkster looking dudes there and I, I loved my relationship with them. They were great people. And I went to the buffest people I could find and said, Hey, I want some help. And they told me what to eat. They told me about the oatmeal and the egg whites. They told me how to lift. They told me how to train. And I just followed what they said. I used to walk to the gym, which was about two or three miles every day. So after school, I'd walk to the gym. I would live at the gym and then I'd come home. And um, I wasn't even tracking my weight. It just fell off. And I just got in great shape from from working out hours a day. So um, that was a really, it, to me, it showed me how things could work if you're just intense in whatever you do. And that's something I try to follow all the time now. Well, I think there's another level to that of asking for help or oh, yeah. asking for advice and being able to go to that person and ask. I see it all the time in you know, our respective career when I see the, the people that are that are starting out in this industry and they're asking for advice or, hey, I want to bounce some ideas. Off. I, I see it all the time. And I think it's so important to be able to do that. It's It's so important. I agree. If you don't get wisdom from people, then um, you're recreating the will and wasting a ton of time. Me talking to the best of the best allowed me just to simply imitate what they were doing versus trying to relearn. So you're absolutely right. That saved me so much time and it gave me additional motivation because I got to see people that were great and simply follow their footsteps. Mm -hmm. So I, I would love to to talk about that a little later on in the conversation when we start talking about more of the career and stuff, but you mentioned your goal to play football, you had, you know, check that box, but then also you mentioned about being in student government. How did that work out for you? Well, that's a funny story. So um, I was the, I think I was the first or second African-American to ever be elected to be student body president of University of Houston. And I was the first person to be elected as an independent. So the way that worked out, um, typically when you run for student government, you have a party, just like you have Republicans and Democrats, you have a party of people. And there's a group of maybe 40, 50 people that get together and they form a ticket and then they run. I didn't do that. I ran as just an independent for president. Now, at first I went to the Greeks because the Greeks ran U of H and um, both sides did not have a president at the time. And I went to both respective tickets and said, hey, um, you guys have a slot open for president and I want to run for president. Can I run with you guys? And I guess I wasn't cool enough <laughs> or something because <laughs> they were like, well, yeah, we don't, we'll, we'll put you in the Senate, but we don't think you're a fit for president. And since I really wanted that role, I said, well, let me just run myself as an independent. So it was, most people thought I was a joke. They didn't think that I had any chance of winning whatsoever. So I was kind of a sleeper candidate. And um, you had two major tickets, two major Greek parties running, very popular kids at the time. And you had me. And um, I got 40 volunteers to help me campaign. And we got some really good campaign material and just worked hard. And uh, we ended up winning the, the first election, which led to a runoff. And then we won that runoff as well. And it was one of the largest elections in UH history uh, for my first term. So um, that was a big learning experience for me. What, what, what do you say you took away most from that experience? Um, that you can put anything, my father has told me this, you can put anything that you put your mind to. I used to eat and sleep victory. I just uh, visualized every day what life would look like, the people that I could help if I got this position. And I was also really scared of losing too. Mm. That was a big motivator. So um, the mechanics of me executing that was... Um, putting a plan together, me transferring that enthusiasm to the people that helped me as volunteers, which were, which was pivotal because without those volunteers, I don't think I would have had that opportunity to win. So transferring that enthusiasm to volunteers that in turn helped me, uh, me watching what the competition was doing, uh, putting up flyers all day, all night, students would rip down the flyers and the next morning they'd look at the wall, it'd be right back up again because our team would put them back up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked just as hard as the people that I had volunteering with me. So I think all those things helped me uh, and helped kind of define uh, attributes in me moving forward. 
Did, did you have any idea what you wanted to do? Well, what was your major in school? It was business management, actually. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do for a career once you graduated? I had no idea. I just, I knew I did not want to do accounting. <laughs> I knew that. I mean, it's funny because I deal with numbers a lot now on my job, but, but we have people that are analysts that help us with a lot of that. Um, I love people. I love big picture stuff. So I knew I wanted to do something in leadership and management and a degree in management just fit. Um, I was an MIS major at first, but I took Dr. Parker's class at U of H. And for those that have been in U of H, know Dr. Parker's was a really, really good uh, programming instructor. And he gave us a task where we had to build a chess program. I forgot if it was C++ or Visual Basic. And my first couple of weeks of trying that let me know for sure that programming was not for me. Hmm. <laughs> and I said, I, I love technology but I don't want to be a coder. That's just not the way my mind works. So I pivoted from MIS to management because I felt like that was better suited. And, uh, and I'm thankful for that decision. You, you mentioned something that your, your father said before, and you mentioned one of, one of your professors. Were there any people in high school or college that stand out that you were like, these people were instrumental in some of the decisions that I, that I made during that time? Um, my parents, uh, I'd have to say my parents and also my faith, uh, my faith above, above, above all else, because the fundamentals that I was taught uh, by being taught in the Bible and the principles of, of uh, a Christ follower, those principles, not saying that I'm perfect, I'm so far from that, but the things that I've learned there have encouraged me when I've been down. They have, it has realigned me when I've been dissuaded and, um, it teaches me to love people that the most important things in life to treat others as you would yourself. Uh, those principles come from um, Christ and what he has taught us. So that's, I have to say that's my biggest influence by far my parents afterwards, because they kind of shaped me and uh, having a father figure is something I don't take for granted. So many of my friends did not. And for me to have a dad that worked at Exxon as an executive there um, and was a leader and I got to see that day in and day out, that really gave me some principles that, that I still hold fast to today. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. And, and the fact that you can specifically talking about your, your dad's influence and seeing somebody in a day-to-day -day basis, you know, doing, doing what, what he's doing and, and leading by example is um, that's remarkable. What was there, was there anything far as like when you saw him operating in the business world that you saw what he was doing and how he was doing it that was a positive influence or that that you maybe thought like oh i want to do business because i see him doing x oh yeah well I, I would say one of the biggest takeaways is watching how my father handled uh an evolving workplace you see my father was one of the first uh, i almost call it an experiment when affirmative action was actually put in place exxon was one of the first companies that kind of pioneered this measure. And they took the best and brightest from black colleges. My father and my mother both were a byproduct of that action. And they were recruited because of their performance at black colleges. So when my father worked in Exxon, which is a tremendous place to work, and Exxon's a client of JLO right now, ironically enough, and I love that. But um, Exxon was trying to figure out how do we, how do we integrate um, minority participation. And my father's trying to figure out how do I thrive in a situation where um, I'm working with people that may have a different background. They don't look like me. There may be some prejudice still there. And I got to see my father deal with all sorts of situations, some positive, some negative. I got to see him deal with some biases. I got to see him deal with, with some aspects of, of, of racism. And I'm not saying that's necessarily at the job, but just in society. So seeing my father deal with uh, a very tumultuous time period prepared me for how I should be building relationships. And now that I'm in corporate America, it's, we have grown a lot as far as how things are structured and as far as a desire on a corporate level to see more diversity and inclusion. I think that's grown. I still think we have a ways to go in how we implement real authentic diversity. And me seeing my father for years do a day in and day out really, really helped me. So 
I'd have to say that's one of the most notable um, attributes that that he shared with me. Yeah, how to how to navigate those situations, how to navigate life in general and relationships. Yeah, I think that's spot on. You're so you're in college. You know you don't want to do accounting. You know you don't want to be. You know you don't want to be a programmer. You know, say senior year, or whatever. You're 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 leaving college. Like, what was your next step after college? Well, I got um, recruited. So because I was student body president, uh, I would recommend for anybody, uh, if you have kids that are in college, get them in student government. Because when you're a leader on campus, the companies recognize that and you get tremendous networking opportunities. So I got recruited by a Fortune 500 company to be in their executive training program. Before I even graduated, I got an offer and I got a bonus and I was able to work for this company. It was a great company. And, um, that kind of changed my future. Cause I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I, I was just living life and enjoying uh, being a student government. So this opportunity that I was given kind of made me go into, um, this particular industry, which was, uh, an assistant buyer program or a buyer program where I got to help manage inventory and select forward fashion, uh, for major companies. And, uh, these companies decide a lot of the fashions that people wear today. Uh, we get a lot of inspiration from Paris and Europe, and I was kind of taught that whole life and that culture. So it brought me there for a few years and I got to learn what I loved and what I didn't like. And I got to learn pretty quickly in a corporate environment that I love people. I love leadership. I love innovation, um, entrepreneurship. What I, what I'm not really strong at is heavy admin work. I don't, I don't really thrive in that situation. And so Unfortunately, when you start a job at the beginning, the way that these companies used to do on internships is they'd have you sorting clothes or, or doing something that's really not really challenging. And I struggled in those environments because I felt like it was a waste of my time. Um, but the other side of me said, well, no, James, it's not a waste because you need to learn this business. And so that conflict of me doing my best to learn the business, because that's where, that's where my heart needed to be. But then the other side was, well, it's really draining because it's not something I love to do. I only ended up doing that for about two years before I got into something I thought was really exciting, which was uh, recruiting and staffing. So that was more people, less admin. And I said, let me make the transition, you know? Okay. And um, so that step, so what, what, what type of industry were you doing the recruiting for? Um, so I did, um, I worked with Aerotech. Uh, which was, it still is the largest privately held staffing firm in the in the, in the country. So I did uh, welders, machinist. I did uh, plumbologist, uh, pharmacist. So really, uh, tech, science, tech, and then uh, industrial. I recruited for for those two sectors, um, and even semi semiconductor work, where people that were working on semiconductors and boards, I would I would help recruit people for that. So that was a tremendous opportunity because I got to interview thousands of people. I got to learn how society puts a number on a person mm. and how I can get, let's say you get a resume from a John Smith. John Smith is a Caucasian male, blonde hair, blue eyes. I had done so much work in this market. I could put a number on him, on what he was worth to the market. And I can also put a number on Jerome Smith, who may have been an African-American um, same amount of years of experience, but because of the cultural differences, he had a different number. The market wanted to pay for him. Um, the same goes for women. The same goes for different cultures. Staffing shows you intimately how people view different cultures and what they're worth on the workplace. And the numbers don't lie. You can see the salaries that these people would ask for and the salaries they would actually get. You could see the pay differences and you could also see how people that may have been not the most optimal candidate from their perspectives, right? So if you're maybe a minority or you're a young black man trying to break into a field where there's not many, there are certain things you have to do to be more attractive. Um, maybe you have to go with a nickname. And this is, I'm not saying I endorse this. I'm saying this is what happened. Some yeah. people would have to go with a nickname or they, they change the resume and change their experience. They would discount a certain school over another, if they went to a school that wasn't seen as prestigious. There's just a lot of things that went into that game. And again, it showed me a lot about how society works. Was, was this something that 
was new to you or just something that reinforced what you already felt like you knew? It wasn't, it wasn't new to me, uh, Dustin, but what, what it was, what it did do was articulate a number. Like, like some people, my dad always taught me, um, James, if you look different than other people, and if they look down on that particular culture, you may have to work twice as hard to make the same amount of progress. And in some situations, I do believe that's true. Um, what this exposure did for me was it showed exactly how much certain companies thought some people were worth versus others. And when you can say that a John Smith was worth $3 more an hour than a Jerome Smith at this particular company, and that was systemic, then it gave you a unique insight. And it also gave me insight to understand how I might need to position myself uh, to, to be viewed a certain way. So hmm. this was, I don't want this to come across as negative. It was a blessing to me to see it because now that I'm in sales and I, I pursue some of the largest companies in the world, I, I want to understand how some people may see me and I want to understand how some people may, may view me so that I understand how to communicate with them better. Um, so I think it was a positive net positive experience. And I think things have gotten a lot better since I was involved in that industry all those years ago, but I'm sure some of that still persists. In doing, in doing that, and this is something I, I think about this often, uh, probably more often than I, than I would like, honestly, but, um, being your, bringing your full self to certain interactions and being in the world and understanding like, oh, this may be perceived in this way. So I have to do this and that. And I, and I hear what you're saying. It's a net positive because then you're like, okay, if I have to work harder, then I'll work harder. If I have to work, if I have to add this skill, then I'm going to add that skill in doing that. So I, I understand that. Do you feel like in any way there the other side of that, like you, that in certain situations that you can't bring your full self to the, to a situation. Oh yeah. So yeah. to, to flip the script, there is, I think it's called imposter syndrome is the, the terminology, mm -hmm. but when people feel like they're not good enough, um, that's a, that's very prevalent even to this day. And there's a lot of reasons that people may have that insecurity, but, but here are some tools and some techniques that I've learned from that staffing experience that's really helped me. Um, first of all, your diversity is your strength. And some people use that as a cliche, but for me, um, my background is, uh, allows me to see things differently than a lot of people. Uh, the fact that I've had different challenges than some people means that I have a different perspective and if you learn how to leverage that different perspective, it makes you a better salesperson because you can show them something they haven't seen before. And, and let me get literal. Um, in my business in real estate, um, there's a lot of groupthink because a lot of people come from the same backgrounds, same cultural backgrounds, right? So if you're talking to a client that grew up in the same neighborhood as you, um, you guys grew up in the same bubble, socioeconomic bubble, you're going to share a lot of the same views and beliefs. I didn't grow up in the socioeconomic circles of many of my clients. Um, I grew up middle class, um, very blessed, but, but middle class. So I grew up having to be a little bit scrappier, a little bit more creative in some things and negotiate a little bit harder on some things. And the people that I represented in the beginning were smaller businesses that prioritized saving money over just having the biggest names in the business. So mm -hmm. the way I approach every deal is with that mentality. And I would encourage anyone that may have imposter syndrome, you got to see a, what may be perceived as a weakness to some, you have to see that as a strength and you have to flip that and look at how does that difference in my perspective allow me to show a different perspective to them? And, and how does that different perspective maybe add value? Because in my world, my ability to be able to read people me having some street smarts, me prioritizing saving money over just having a name, it, I think it adds more value for my clients. And um, if I work with a, uh, you know, I have a few Fortune 500 companies now that I get to work with and I take that approach to them. And while they don't need to save every penny, they appreciate that mentality and that approach. I tell you that. Yeah, that's, that's spot on.
That's yeah. amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to go back to like part of your journey when you're now you're in staffing and recruiting. So we're meandering a little bit, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Cause that was, that was, that was gorgeous. That was fantastic. Um, <laughs> so you're recruiting. Did you know anything about commercial real estate at this point, or was it even a, a blip on the, on your radar? No, it wasn't. Um, I went from staffing, which was great. Uh, as far as the work environment, very competitive. I learned how to sell. And I would tell someone that staffing is one of the hardest sales jobs you can get into because you're, well, well, why is that? Staffing is difficult because there are so many other companies out of your competitors and staffing companies get selected for sometimes very shallow reasons. Sometimes it's the, the young lady or the young man that brings donuts the most consistently to a company. They get the, the job. Sometimes it's, it's very, you know, maybe my niece or nephew knows someone in your family and I get the job. Um, it's very subjective. It's very commoditized. So staffing is a tough sell because you have to stand out in unique ways and very difficult ways to continuously win business. And that was a great learning environment for me. So um, the only reason I got out of staffing, I really enjoyed it. The only reason I got out of staffing is I got recruited into uh, campaigns. So, um, you know, because I was student body president at uh, U of H and I did really well, uh, my second year that I was student body president, we won by the largest margin ever in UH history. And oh. we had, we also, I was no longer independent. So now my second year, I brought on a full ticket of like 40 plus people and every one of my ticket positions won. So imagine the Democrats sweeping the House and the Senate and the presidency. That's essentially what we did at U of H. Mm. Um, so that had never been done before. So I knew that I had a, a gift in that area and I was recruited from recruiting. <laughs> I was recruited <laughs> from recruiting into uh, politics where I got to work uh, with, uh, you know, Mayor Anise Parker and her team um, at City Hall. They made a position for me um, as an executive there. And in the uh, off season, I would work campaigns. I'm sorry, in the off season, I would work at City Hall. And um, during campaign season, I would actually leave City Hall and work on various campaigns across Texas. So that was my next position. And so how, so it's still at this point, commercial real estate's not in your, in your uh, windshield. Not, not until next. Um, I got into commercial real estate after that. What, so what, what, what was your, what was your first, um, like somebody saying like, Hey, this is a, this is a potential career. Like what was that introduction to commercial real estate? You know, what's funny. Um, my introduction was I just started a family when I started at city hall and I wanted to make more money than just a, a public servant to support my family. Um, because you know, when you're in the public eye, your salary and everything is, is scrutinized and you need to, um, make as little as possible. Cause that looks politically the best, but that's not the best if you're trying to raise a family on a, on a, on a, on a city salary. So, I said, look, I love people. I love sales. Um, I'm thinking about getting into real estate, but I don't really want to sell houses. So while I was at City Hall, um, I talked to Anise and a few people about, hey, I might, I may make a transition, but let me get some education in real estate and see if that's something for me. So I went to Champion School of Real Estate and the first class they had, I immediately asked about commercial because there was a mystique about it. It was something that it seemed like nobody was doing especially no one that was black or brown. Very few, I didn't see any women in that space at all. It was all white male that was in commercial. And when I asked the instructor, hey, um, I'd like to learn more about commercial real estate. They said, don't even worry about it. You need to be part of an inside club to get in there. Um, it's, it's, it's like getting into Harvard. So I said, okay, that's for me. That's what I want to do. <laughs> because, because you said it was hard and you said I shouldn't do it. Now, all of a sudden, that's what I want to do. And and so I got my real estate license and um, went from the city of Houston to uh, Grubin Ellis, which was at the time, it was the third largest firm in the world. So I went to Grubin Ellis and got my start there into real estate. That sounds eerily simi similar to, to my start where I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> Once I saw it, I was like, I want to do that. And everyone was like, that's no, right. no, no, it's, that's not for you. You need this, this, and that. I was like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to figure it out. That's right. I'm gonna 
and you did figure it out. And, uh, and, and I did too. It's, and it's a great industry. I tell anybody, if you're interested in commercial, it's a great field. Very rewarding. Well, very difficult though. Yeah. Of course. And now more than, more than most times, but one of the things like transferable skills and the things that you've learned along the way. And, you know, as you're talking about all these things and, and being a people person and, and leadership and, and, you know, the sales and all of those things and being, being able to be out and about and solving problems. I feel like all those things are encompassed in commercial real estate. One of the things that I didn't realize starting out is just how wide the array of opportunities are in commercial real estate, where it's not just brokerage, although those generally the biggest checks, but the development, the tax, title, insurance, management, asset management, property management, all, you know, even you can go to the the vendor side and, you know, power washing, (laughs) roofing vendors, HVAC, it's a whole, it's its whole ecosystem. That, that that if unless you're you become you get the opportunity to see behind the curtain like you you don't you don't really know well well you don't dustin and um that's one of my passions now now that i am privileged enough to be at jones lang lasalle and um i'm i am one of the higher ranked um minority uh brokers in houston probably the state as a senior vice president i'm in a position where i can empower people uh, to get exposed to a lot of what a firm this grand can offer. And I will tell you, Dustin, that uh, there's so much to the commercial real estate industry that uh, we can share with um, just people in the community that will not only empower them, but give them access to maybe see this as a career. Because the industry itself is still about 97% uh, white male. And, and I'm not saying that we, I'm not saying that there needs to be a number where the industry needs to be a certain percentage of this color versus this color. I don't, I don't believe in that philosophy. But what that does tell me is maybe there's a challenge with exposure where that's why there's so few, uh, uh, there's so little diversity in the space because not enough people are exposed the way me and you got to be exposed. Maybe not enough of us when they hear that, oh, you don't want to do that. That's a that's a private club. That's a fraternity that you can't get into. Maybe too many people are turned off by that instead of like us, where we were turned on by it and said, we're going to go for it. Maybe some people are saying, well, why don't I go into, uh, why don't I work for Morgan Stanley? If you're a top 10 percenter and you know have the resume to get into a firm like this, uh, you got other options. You got big banks, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, you got some really big institutions that say, look, I'll pay you 250, 300 grand a year. You can come over here and I'll teach you the business. You don't have to worry about any of that. So mm-hmm. you got that going on. So, so the question I have for a lot of people is, okay, for your, for your, top, for your top talent, what's going to make someone want to go into an industry that is 100% commission, you know, where you eat what you kill, when you can take that same ability and make a couple hundred thousand a year and someone teach you the ropes. Mm. My argument would be you want to get in this business because your, your earning potential will far exceed that salary when you're good at what you do and the demand mm. is there, but you gotta, you gotta work for it. And are you going to be willing to put in the work? And for those that are the sky's the limit. Cause I, I feel like things are changing. Companies want to see that authentic community involvement. And that means having more, of the listeners of this podcast saying, Hey, I can get in there. And these companies like JLL will want me to be a part of this and they will empower me if I just put in the work. Uh, it's just a decision that each person has to make for themselves. Yeah. This, this reminds me of something you said a few minutes ago when you mentioned seeing things from an outside perspective and having those experiences where diversity is your strength. And yeah. right now I think we're in a time where it takes creative solutions to make an impact like what what traditionally and i'm not saying completely abandoned the the fundamentals but what got us here i feel like is not going to get us out and you're going to need some creative solutions to make the adjustments to to get where we need to go to help right the ship or make a ship different than than it's ever even looked before you know dustin let's this is a great segue to talk about some tools and techniques right 
I am so excited. I love about- that you keep plugging the name. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. I love that. Yeah, well, <laughs> well it's, I, I love the podcast. I love what you're doing here. Thank and you. When, when we look at um, how do we succeed just in a sales environment, uh, for me personally, I love technology because it is a force multiplier. Technology allows me to reach people I could never reach before. And I'll give you an example. The old way of doing commercial real estate was you would do bumps, maybe where you hang out downtown and you bump into a CFO or a CEO at an exclusive country club or an exclusive restaurant. These are places I don't live at. These are places I don't really frequent. I don't want to really get a country club membership. So normally I'd be stuck out because I'm just not in those circles. But what technology allows you to do is you're able to use artificial intelligence to create a newsletter that might be groundbreaking. You can use the art of video, which I lean heavily on, to syndicate content where you can draw people in yourself and they can get to know you. You can use the internet to create sales funnels where you can build systems where you can put out content and have people click on links that are of interest and you can build databases and automatically follow up with them and build systems that make you a a super salesperson. And these are things that I've been able to adopt over the years that have helped me so that I don't have to spend my time the same way my colleagues do. And I'm able to work smarter, not harder. And and let's be frank, me being um, just culturally different than most of my clients, I prefer that they get to see me for who I am as soon as possible. Mm. Because the sooner they can see me in my own element, they can determine if they like me enough to bring me in for a meeting. That is so much better than trying to fake it until you make it and get into the room. And then they get surprised. Oh, (laughs) you know, I didn't know, you know, I I thought you'd be different in some kind of way. And that affects how I'm going to, whether I'm going to work with you or not. I'd rather them get to see me for who I am immediately determine if they like me or not. Cause the people that don't like me won't respond to my, 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 my content. But the people that do feel the vibe that I have and, and that agree with my heart and, and how I want to help people, they'll call. And not only do they call, but it's no sales job at all at that point. It's just- They're, They already seen you and know you to yeah. accept. They've already been welcomed into your sphere. Yeah, that's fantastic. One of my largest clients, Dustin, I'm telling you, one of my largest clients asked me to lunch and said, um, I'd like to just talk to you about something you put out there on LinkedIn. And he paid for lunch. Um, he offered business to me. And a year <laughs> and a half later, year and a half later, that's my largest client. And I'm telling you, um, it works. So as far as tools, LinkedIn, artificial intelligence, um, other tools, well, I use Apple Notes to actually write notes down on what I want to do. I use AI to structure like how I want to write content. I use AI to grade my content. I use AI to help me write my sales letters. I, I mean, we could probably talk for an hour just on how I use AI and even with creating graphics that are compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm starting to use AI with helping me edit some of the videos so I don't have to hire people to, the, to do that as much. So um, technology is going to be a game changer. And this is an opportunity for people that felt like they didn't get a way in before. They can now leverage that. Because now you can work 10 times more efficiently than someone that's not using these tools. And that gives you an advantage, no matter what color you are. You, you know what? That the AI, I've been interested in AI for decades now. And I, I've always loved it. The movies about it, books about it, you know, what the, the challenges are, that are forthcoming that come along with it. And so now I'm actually I'm on a course right now with Cal Berkeley for um, business applications for artificial intelligence and i tell you jumping in the deep end of ai because yeah there's the things that you know about it and this and that and then actually to your point before about not not being a coder yeah i'm not a coder and so but they go that deep in it but then also working with people from all different industries and what they're thinking and how they would implement it and what are the what are the advantages of there it's this is this is such an amazing time to to be alive and to be a business professional and oh, yeah. to have these tools available. Well, Dustin, it, it, here's the great thing, man. It's it's not even about 
coding anymore because AI allows you to prompt engineer what you want. Mm -hmm. That's one of the beauty, uh, beautiful things about this platform. I use chat GPT, which right now seems to be the most advanced artificial intelligence platform out there. Um, you could go more granular and look at how the deep learning systems are made. And we could talk about that, but for the most, for most people, what they're going to be really excited about is you have a platform now where you can just speak English and say, you know what? I want to, I want to have a diet. I want to get on a diet. So let me do a four week keto program that I can eat the following meals, maybe three, three times a day. And AI can spit that out. And then you can, I guess, code by saying, I don't like that result. Change it for me. I'll give you a sales application that we used recently. Um, I was putting together a pitch for a major client um, outside of Houston. And I spent hours on this thing. And I said, you know what? I want another set of eyes on this, not just for grammar, but I want to read it through the eyes of my client, who would be a CEO and a CFO. So I, I told ChatGPT, um, I used the following language. I said, look, you are a CEO of Fortune 500 company. I want you to read this and critically assess your thoughts. So I took that piece. It gave me half a page worth of notes. I said, okay, that sounds good. Make those changes. <laughs> <laughs> the best and assistant ever. I, you kidding me? It's like, I said, that sounds great. Make those changes. So what, it, what I ended up getting was... It was still my creation, right? I'm not plagiarizing; it's my words, but I'm using the the tools there to create something I could have never done myself in that time frame. It would have taken me three days to make what I ended up making in 30 minutes. And the only reason it took 30 minutes because it took me 25 to to write down most of the material. The rest mm -hmm. of it was AI really doing what it does, and it's getting better every day. Yeah, it's so, remarkable. It's absolutely yeah. remarkable. Absolutely. I, I want I want to come back and talk about your work with the municipalities. I think we, we talked a little bit about the, the DEI efforts, but I know you're also working on some pretty special things with uh, with the municipalities. Can you can you talk about that? Sure, sure. So um, where my heart has always been in commercial real estate is looking at how real estate empowers and enhances the lives of people in communities. When you look at a typical urban environment, there's always been a dialogue, particularly in the black community where we don't own enough of our real estate. I know in Houston, there are a handful of black owners of commercial real estate in Houston, just a handful. I feel like I know all of them. We need a lot more. Um, the same goes for your brown communities. And uh, I think some other communities have done slightly better but in as far as ownership in their communities, but the black and brown communities particularly don't have enough of a stake in the neighborhoods that they live in. And we have gone to different municipalities that um, have the same desire to want to grow empowerment for those communities and grow ownership. And we're just connecting dots. You know, Jones Lang LaSalle is a global leader when it comes to real estate and development. And for us to be able to bring larger partners into a development that, that may be in a certain city. And then having the right mindset to bring local involvement of businesses so that these developments that could bring hundreds of millions of dollars to a city are led by people in that community. That results in millions of, of tax dollars for that community to build up infrastructure. It, it results in millions of dollars for people to, to get jobs, thousands of jobs for people in that community. It provides and insulates community so that you can increase security and you can set them up so that if a Walmart were to leave a major metro, like when Walmart backed out of Chicago and you had the mayor of Chicago saying, hey, look, this is unfair. How dare you do that? My heart went out to Chicago for the loss of a, a major uh, force like that economically. What I also thought was, okay, guys, this is an opportunity because when a Walmart leaves, because they say sales are down or because of shrinkage, right? Then um, that does have a negative economic impact. But if we can very thoughtfully look at how can development be created in an urban area or in a small city 
where we can thoughtfully bring in local partners that aren't going to leave, that are local businesses that are going to thrive and those dollars are going to stay there and those dollars are going to circulate there. How is that going to impact this area over the long term? How is it going to impact uh, legacy wealth where black and brown people in these municipalities of all races, in fact, can pass on their wealth for generations like so many of our counterparts do in these major cities? So um, these are things we're working on now. And these are conversations we're having using the resources uh, of a firm like Jones Lang LaSalle, combined with the perspective of, of local doers like myself and you that are, that are boots on the ground. We know what it's like in these communities. And we're just, we're just combining that together to create environments where people can thrive. What can, what can we do to help? I, I mean, or, or I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like what, how there's, there's a lot of ideas and I think all this is going in the right direction, Yeah. but like what, what is needed to get to the next step? You know, it's, um, it's sharing the word. If you, if you're thinking about an area, maybe your hometown that, uh, you know, that they, they're, they're struggling. They, they, they need to have some redevelopment. They need to have some enhanced, uh, local ownership that um, just sharing the word, say, hey, there's an opportunity and let's talk because we're, we're talking to cities all over the state right now and even outside of Texas that uh, they want local empowerment. They want to ride this train of technology. They want to get involved with AI, which means you need to upgrade some of your infrastructure in some cases. They want to future-proof their cities. And these are conversations that we want to have so that as technology continues to increase, and as more and more people do remote work where they're not working at the office anymore, and you have just AI taking over more and more opportunities, we're preparing these communities to be positioned and thrive. Because the whole country, um, I don't want to digress, but um, we've seen a decoupling uh, in a lot of ways uh, from globalization right now. I don't know if it's going to stay that way, but when you look at the U.S., we're bringing more manufacturing to our shores than we ever have in the longest time. Hmm. and that's why the industrial market's been doing so phenomenally well. You know, so if that continues, are, are these communities participating in the ownership and the operation of these facilities? Are these communi communities participating in, in growing these companies, right? And, and helping in those processes. So the way that you can help is by sharing, hey, James, I think, you know, my city might be interested and us having a conversation, maybe I can share some stories we're doing in some of these municipalities right now. Um, these development initiatives take years to accomplish, but once they are fulfilled, they result in hundreds of millions of dollars in development opportunities for people in those communities. And that changes lives. And, and that's, that's the part about commercial real estate that excites me. It's not, it's not getting a commission. It's looking back at a community and say, you know what, this entire center was built with the mindset of let's do what's best for the people here and look at them thrive. Look at the kids being able to grow up in someplace safe. People are having jobs and, and not feeling like they have to leave a community because the jobs aren't there. So um, that's something that I'm really excited about. So I guess to help is just letting me know if your town might need something like that and we can talk well, about it. Well, I, I wonder, well, so before I even say this, does JLL have its own, um, uh, I won't say government services arm, but is there is there a specific initiative that is like a team that's focused on this, or is it just something that's that's trickling throughout the the organization? Well, this is this is something that we pioneered, so um, I'm proud to say that we get to take the reins on this and, and take a leadership role. Um, we are a huge organization, so we have best in class development, project management. Um, we have all the tools there. The thing that I believe is different about our perspective here is we're focusing on making sure that the community members are involved. That's what's different. Um, any, I think, best-in-class firm has relationships where you can help connect dots. But do you know the community well enough? Do you know who to go to once you have maybe identified 20 acres? Do you know the people in the community that can take the lead on the multifamily development there? Do you know the local businesses that might be interested in the industrial development there? These are things that, that we know because we're boots on the ground. Hmm. So we're combining 
the exceptional resources of a global firm at JLL with the local knowledge and the heart to make sure that the local community is, is leading the effort. That's the difference, is, um, is, is not just making sure a deal is done, but a deal is done with, with people with boots on the ground that have a stake that are going to stay there and keep those dollars in those communities. Yeah, that, and that and that it's a it's a win win. It benefits the community, the people, the company, all those involved. And looking at it from a holistic perspective. Yeah, that's it. Um, that's that's the difference, and that's what that's what that's what keeps me um, excited about these opportunities. And, and sure, it takes a lot of work, but um, I haven't even thought about well, what are our commissions there, and how do we get paid through that? Um, I'm sure we're going to participate in some transactions, but um, what's more important to me is making sure we bring the party because when you do that, you increase the size of the pie and that's what we want. We, we want to get away from that scarcity mindset and look at the abundance mindset of working together and promoting collaboration. And I got to tell you, Dustin, I've, I've, I've been so encouraged with the people I've already met. Um, and these are some of our most successful uh, minority businesses in the country that have reached out to us and said, you know what? Uh, we believe in this and we want to be involved. And um, we want to hire locally. So given the opportunity, we'd love, we'd love to bring hundreds of jobs to, and, and training to these communities uh, once we can get these puzzle pieces put together. So it's, it's coming together. It's exciting to watch. And I, I can't wait to keep you posted on how things go over the next few months. Well, I, I would, this reminds me of this conversation I had recently with one of my friends, uh, Bob Dalton who's the CEO founder of uh, sackcloth and, Ash- and ashes. And he's, um, he's all about localism and local, local efforts. I think oh, yeah. he, uh, you're, you're singing the same tune of what he's pushing. And I love to hear that because when people have those the intentions in, in the right place and you can put people together that it's an ample, like you mentioned before, a force amp multiplier. That's right. Like that's, that's what that is. When you get the right people in the, in the same room and also one of the things that you alluded to and, and Bob spoke to this well, like it's not one size fits all. What make, makes sense for one community is not necessarily for another, but through technology and different tools and you can figure out what works best, where, why, how, and then take that knowledge and that information into the next scenario and be able to do it more effectively, more efficiently. Absolutely. Technology is going to allow so many people that did not have opportunities to have them. I don't see it as technology being a threat to jobs as much as I see it for, for the right people that want to look at it this way. And, and I really credit uh, Generation Z, I believe, uh, the, the, some of the newer generations that are native to technology. They've really embraced the whole culture of what tech brings to the table. How many millionaires have we seen from YouTube, from Twitch, from all these platforms that had a great idea? They started creating content and created entire um, just communities around what they want to do. I think that's the future in so many ways. You still need manufacturing. That's going to be here. And, and it's going to be even more prevalent as the years go on for the U.S. But with manufacturing, you're going to need people that do create content. You're going to need people that do learn the new way of coding, which is leveraging AI to create new language. You're going to need more people thinking about solutions to problems. And that has no, racism doesn't exist in that space. And and this is what I try to preach to so many people. If you're worried about, am I going to get my fair share? Am I going to get, where, where's my seat at the table? Technology allows that because no one's stopping you from being innovative. I'm challenging everybody. Your ideas matter. Your creativity matters. So think of a solution to a problem. And now that you have AI, and now that you have all these tools at your, at your fingertips, you can leverage the resources available to, to kind of prove out your solution. You can write business plans in a day. You can write sales plans in a day now, which used to take weeks to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can even crowdfund to fund your efforts, leveraging technology. And the community want they embrace it when they see a fellow person in their community saying look i got this great idea and you put your content out there you're going to find hundreds and hundreds of people that say i like what you're doing i'm going to support you financially so um the sky is the limit the old way of looking at things where you know 
maybe a certain perspective or mindset would block you. It can't block you anymore. You know, I can go to a bank if they deny me for a loan. Okay, I can go to to a crowdfunding site and get financing that way. Or I can go to people in my community leveraging social media and find people that are going to believe in me enough to do it. So for the people that stop and say, well, that bank rejected my loan, their loss, they're going to be sorry about it later. And I I want to encourage my, my brethren, be that type of person where you look at that rejection and say, okay, well, they just don't get it, but I do. And I'm going to find a community that does, and we're going to blow you guys out the water. Yeah. That's, that's our goal. That's our goal with development here is the old way of doing things. We're going to change that because if you're not taking care of the people in the community, you shouldn't do the job. And if you're taking dollars outside of the community, you should not do the job. You should empower people there. And we want to reward the people there because they live there. They pay taxes there. They raise their kids there. They're the ones buying your products and services. So why should they not participate in, in the community that you're creating? So that's our perspective. And I hope we can get more people on board with that too. I love it, James. On that note, on that, you knocked it out of the park, man. Knew you would. Knew you would. (laughs) And I'm so appreciative. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And so part two, we will have another episode because we need to dive a little deeper into the AI and all the tools because we covered a lot of things today, but I know we're just scratching the surface. There's so much to share. Yeah, well, let, let's get really stricter with the AI in the future. Um, we'll, we'll talk offline about that. But yeah, let's have some fun with it. All right. Well, James, thank you again. All right, brother. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Tools, Talents, and Techniques. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did find value in the episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite platform, leaving a review, and sharing with your network. We have an amazing lineup in the coming weeks and months with some very impressive leaders and some of the heaviest hitters in business who are making a positive impact in the world. So stay tuned for more exciting episodes and special features coming up. We appreciate your ongoing support and look forward to welcoming you back next time on Tools, Talents, and Techniques.